This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you and sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. Like most of you, we're on holiday now, and we thought you might like to hear some of our best stories from 2021. This week, Bill Southworth looks at the career of Sir Keith Park, and Barraclough covers the 125th anniversary of St Hilda's, and I report on the visit to Dunedin of a famous journalist and explorer. The RAF fighter pilots who shot down hundreds of German planes in the skies above England in 1940 were led by former Dunedin schoolboy Keith Park. He was the crucial figure in the Battle of Britain. It was said of him that if he made the wrong decisions, he was the only man who could have lost the war in a day or even an afternoon. Bill Southworth prepared this profile. Between July and October 1940, the skies above London and southern England were crisscrossed by vapour trails left by Spitfire and Hurricane fighters struggling to bring down huge waves of German bombers that Hitler hoped would knock Britain out of the war. People on the ground watched in amazement at the dogfights taking place above their heads, dogfights which often led to German Heinkel bombers bursting into flame and crashing to earth. What those on the ground were watching was an epic defence being waged by the 11th Fighter Group, tasked with defending London and southern England. 135 New Zealanders flew fighters in the Battle of Britain, and at the head of the 11th Fighter Group was former Dunedin schoolboy Keith Park. The Germans would later nickname him the Defender of London, because he had staked a claim as one of the greatest commanders in history of aerial combat and yet his achievements went almost entirely unacknowledged for decades after the war. And even today, his name is not as well known as it should be. Aria fighter ace Douglas Bader said of him, The awesome responsibility for this country's survival rested squarely on Keith Park's shoulders. British military history of this century has been enriched with the names of great fighting men from New Zealand of all ranks and in every one of our services. Keith Park's name is carved into history alongside those of his peers. Park was born in 1892 in the North Island town of Thames, the son of geologist James Park, who later became a professor at the University of Otago. Keith went to Otago Boys High School, where he was keen on horse riding and guns, but was otherwise an undistinguished young man. He served in the cadets, and later he joined the army as a territorial soldier before going off to sea as a purser on passenger steamships. In World War I, he served at Gallipoli, and in 1915 he was given a battlefield commission as a second lieutenant. During the Battle of the Somme, he was wounded and was certified as being unfit for service. But when he recovered from his wounds, he was able to join the newly formed Royal Flying Corps. In the Flying Corps, Park distinguished himself as a flying ace and emerged from the war as a major with two military crosses, a distinguished flying cross, and the French Croix de Guerre. Between the wars, he rose steadily in the ranks, and by the time of the Second World War, he was an air vice-marshal in command of the 11th Fighter Group. His overall commander was Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding. 
Dowding had implemented the world's first integrated air defence system. The combination of radar and human observers on the ground allowed the RAF to rapidly and accurately respond to incoming German aircraft. With the support of Dowding, Park designed his tactics around mobile and agile defence. Using small formations, he wanted his fighters to intercept German bombers, ideally before they reached their targets. Park's tactics would prove correct, and his forces consistently prevented the Germans from either reaching their targets or being able to hit them as effectively as they could. The small RF formations also gave the Luftwaffe fewer targets to shoot at. It also meant there would always be RAF fighters in the air who could cover planes on the ground. The Germans swept in in formations that sometimes had as many as 400 bombers. However, the RAF fighters caused devastating losses. On one day alone, the Germans were reported to have lost 175 planes. The subsequent Chief of Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Dalton, said that Park was... A man without whom the history of the Battle of Britain could have been disastrously different. He was a man who never failed at any task he was given. During the four months the battle raged, Park mostly conducted operations in an underground bunker at RAF Uxbridge. Day after day, Park made strategically brilliant choices, organising and deploying his forces with clinical precision. He soon garnered a reputation as a remarkable tactician, as well as a popular hands-on leader, flying around in his personalised hurricane, regularly visiting airfields and keeping spirits high. At the height of the Battle of Britain, Prime Minister Winston Churchill visited Park's 11 fighter group bunker at Uxbridge and watched the Women's Air Corps staff pushing discs of RAF and German formations around on a huge table. Afterwards, Churchill told Major General Hastings Ismay, Don't speak to me. I have never been so moved. After a few minutes' silence, he said, Never in the history of mankind has so much been owed by so many to so few. Days later, in a speech to the House of Commons on the 20th of August, he made that phrase immortal. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. The Battle of Britain was over by November 1940. Despite the great victories, the Royal Air Force proved itself to be a den of backbiting and jealousy. Air Vice Marshal Trafford Lee Mallory resented his 12th group being given a lesser role defending the airfields. There were also those who thought they would have done a better job. They disliked Dowding's irascibility and considered Park to be vain. Neither Park nor Dowding had much time for internal politics and fell easy prey to their critics, who eventually succeeded and getting them abruptly replaced. Their successors started using tactics the pair had rejected. This new approach failed dismally, and historians now argue that Dowding's strategy and Park's tactics had been correct. 
It is also reasonable to speculate that Park may have been replaced because as a New Zealander, he was seen as an outsider by the British establishment. There was a precedent. Polish pilots had been little regarded by the heads of the RAF until the success of their squadrons made such prejudices unsustainable. Not all in the RAF viewed Park in a bad light. Richard Saul, the commander of the 13th Fighter Group, wrote to Park on learning of his pending departure, commenting on... The magnificent achievements of your group in the last six months. They have borne the brunt of the war and undoubtedly saved England. Despite being given a knighthood for his services, Park remained indignant of his and Dowding's treatment for the rest of his life. But the war was not over for Park, and he would go on to fight in another significant aerial battle, the Battle of Malta. Malta had become strategically vital to both the Allies and Axis powers after the front in North Africa was opened up in 1940. The important island was soon besieged by Axis forces and became the most bombed place on the planet. Park immediately turned the tide of the aerial battle in favour of the Allies, and within six days the Axis forces had abandoned their daylight raids. He finished his RAF service as Allied Air Commander of Southeast Asia. Sir Keith Park retired to New Zealand, settling in Auckland, where he became a city councillor and chairman of the Auckland International Airport Committee, where he had a decisive influence in the establishment of Mangere International Airport. He died in 1975 at the age of 82. After his death, he received recognition of a sort in the UK, where on the Battle of Britain Day in 2010, a statue of him was erected in Waterloo Place, central London. In April 2019, another statue was put up in Thames, where he'd been born. Ron Mark, the Minister of Defence at the time, said at the unveiling, Simply put, Sir Keith was an outstanding man, leader and Kiwi. No other New Zealand-born military figure has had a greater impact on history than Park, for none have ever had such a significant role in determining the course of such a major battle. A battle that, had it been lost would have allowed Hitler's land forces to invade Great Britain, thereby changing the history of the world. Subsequent Chief of the Royal Air Force, Lord Tedder, best summed up Park's achievements in a quote, If any one man won the Battle of Britain, he did. I do not believe it is realised how much that one man, with his leadership, his calm judgement and his skill, did to save not only this country, but the world. Surely a great New Zealander whose achievements are far too little known. This is Bill Southworth reporting. This year, St Hilda's celebrates its 125th anniversary, and Barraclough takes a look at the early history of this long-established Dunedin school. On a visit to England, we went to Whitby, where we visited the Captain Cook Museum. Captain Cook lived at Whitby as a young man, where he was apprenticed to a Quaker-owned shipping company before joining the Royal Navy. A very impressive ruin sits on a prominent headland overlooking Whitby and the sea. This is Whitby Abbey, a one-time Benedictine abbey of nuns and monks where St Hilda was foundress and abbess from 657 until she died in 680. She was an amazing charismatic woman from a noble family, 
highly intelligent, with strong leadership qualities and the ability to impress church leaders and be given great responsibility. People came from far and wide for her advice, and Whitby Monastery became famous and hosted the Synod of Whitby in 664. It was Bishop Neville, Dunedin's first Anglican bishop, who established St Hilda's. Bishop Selwyn encouraged him to apply for the Wellington bishopric. This did not appeal to him, but he and his wife visited New Zealand in 1870, travelling to Dunedin, a newly established diocese, to attend the Synod, after which he was appointed first bishop of Dunedin. He was committed to education and was also responsible for the establishment of Selwyn College for theological students. In 1895, Bishop Neville wrote to the community of the sisters, inviting them to come to Dunedin to set up a school for girls. The order sent a sister May from Australia to investigate. She found Dunedin charming and ripe for them. In December 1895, the sisters were established in Dunedin, sisters Etheline and Geraldine being the first to arrive. Staying at Bishop's Grove while they looked for premises, they found a suitable rental house of 20 rooms at 177 Leith Street called The Grange, which had been the home of a previous mayor in the 60s. Sister Etheline was in charge of boarders and assistant to Sister Geraldine. With the help of two lady volunteers, Mrs Emma Allen and Hannah Dawson, and Selwyn College students, they got the building ready for opening in February 1896. Many parishioners and local churches donated furniture and equipment for the school and chapel. The name, Bishop Neville's Choice, was decided on and the school was advertised. The first prospectus stated... St Hilda's Collegiate School for Girls, Leith Street, Dunedin, is conducted by the Sisters of the Church, assisted by an efficient staff. The aim is to provide a sound education suitable for the daughters of gentlemen, and at the same time, to provide a thoroughly happy home where every effort will be made not only to cultivate the minds of the pupils, but also to train and develop their whole character. The sisters have had wide experience in educational work, both in England and the colonies, and have been acknowledged as highly successful. The whole school is under the immediate supervision of the sisters, who frequently give instruction to the various classes, and so are brought into direct contact with every child under their charge. The health and comfort of resident pupils is made in a special care. Religious instruction is given daily by one of the clergy or a sister. The curriculum includes arithmetic, mathematics, English composition and literature, history, geography, including both physical and political, science, French, Latin, class singing, freehand drawing, needlework and calisthenics. Extras included harmony and theory, singing, music, violin, German, drawing, painting and dancing. Pupils were prepared for university matriculation and homework was not required under Form 3, today's Year 9. A week after opening, the Christian Outlook, the Presbyterian paper, congratulated the bishop on securing an institution where, in addition to the usual branches of education, young ladies will be trained in the special doctrines of the Anglican Church. As time goes on, we grow less and less in love with a system of education, the atmosphere of which is carefully exhausted of all definite religious teaching. The school is the church in embryo.
Columba and John McGlashan Colleges were to be established in 1915 and 1918, respectively. St Hilda's started with 11 pupils, including some boys from kindergarten age up, boarders and day pupils. The sisters were anxious as to how the girls, many of whom had not attended school nor had proper teaching before, would perform in their exams relative to similar-aged children in England. They felt very short of staff and financially hard up. They need not have worried. St Hilda's had got off to a good start. Soon the Leith Street house was too small, with 61 pupils, 16 being boarders. Bishop Neville came to the rescue with a new rental house, Mahinga, on the Cobden Street site. The rent for the St Hilda's premises had steadily grown. Bishop Neville offered to sell the building to the sisters for £4,500. They only had £120. One of them said... Some windfall may blow in our direction, as it has in others. At all events, we save, pray and hope. A cottage was rented in Heriot Row for the overflow. The girls fundraised for the war effort, especially the Belgian refugees. Many old girls went overseas as nurses. In 1917, a substantial brick-built house next door in the Heriot Row was purchased with a gift of £250 from Bishop Neville towards it. During the Spanish flu epidemic, it served as a temporary hospital as the schools were closed. Parents tended to withdraw their girls from school at 14 or send them overseas or to other schools for finishing the sisters successfully applied for the school to be accepted as a centre for the Cambridge exam. In 1912, four seniors and six juniors sat the Cambridge exams. Dressmaking and a new sports mistress were introduced. Girls raised money for a font for the new Anglican Cathedral, consecrated in 1919. Bishop Neville retired at the end of that year. Vacations were dwindling, and the order, in 1930, announced it had reluctantly decided to withdraw the sisters from New Zealand. This caused great dismay. Two laymen, Colonel J. Cowie Nichols and Mr. George Ritchie, loaned the school £2,000 each, and a board of management was set up. The remaining three sisters left Dunedin on the 15th of April 1931 with many fond farewells. The Order of Sisters of the Church had founded and run the school for 35 years. Sister Etheline, Bishop Neville's niece by marriage, had been on the staff the whole time and maintained her interest in the school throughout her life. The board took up the task of running the school, which it has continued to do to this day, St Hilda's enjoying an excellent reputation and producing many distinguished ex-pupils. Miss Blackmore from London was the first lay principal, and many distinguished women have succeeded her. I am proud to say that one of my daughters is an alumna of St Hilda's and that she benefited enormously from her years as a pupil there. I am Anne Barraclough, reporting for Heritage Matters. I am grateful for the voice of Judy Southworth and Judy Mason's Adventure of Faith, the story of St Hilda's Collegiate School, 1896 to 1996. That 19th century literary eminences visited Dunedin, we've mentioned before. 
Mark Twain and Anthony Trollope. Their visits were well reported. Their wit smarted. A young Rudyard Kipling also came by. His fleeting visit in 1891 coincided with that of the Salvation Army's General Booth. The Otago Daily Times positively drooled over Booth and reported the General's meetings extensively. The paper virtually ignored Kipling. Kipling and Booth then sailed for Australia on the SS Talune. Kipling noted that the general beat a tambourine in the face of the singing, weeping and praying crowd who had come to see him off. It was a rough passage to Melbourne. To borrow from William Pember Reeves' contemporary poem, New Zealand, they were girt about with surges and winds of the masterless deep whose tumult uprouses and urges. With Booth's beating tambourine well used to subduing nature's urges and surges, they made landfall. A year later, another literary eminence who'd initiated what would become a tradition of first-person adventure journalism came to Dunedin, Henry Morton Stanley. Mark Twain, applauding Stanley's courage in the American Civil War, called him a fellow Missourian, which Stanley most certainly was not. Nor was he a Stanley. Born in northeast Wales, he was christened John, illegitimate, bastard written unequivocally on his birth certificate, as was the custom. He would grow into a many-dimensioned character. His birth, the passage to America, his adopting the name Stanley. He served on both sides of the Civil War and honed his reporting skills with dispatches from that war, from the American Indian Wars, and even the British invasion of Abyssinia. His ambition to find a place in the top echelon of American journalism found him encouraging the impetuous enfant terrible of publishing James Gordon Bennett, Jr., editor-owner of the New York Herald, to back an expedition Stanley would lead to find Britain's apparently missing nationally adored missionary explorer, and in so doing, scoop the British correspondence and coin the immortal greeting, Dr. Livingston, I presume. All this is well documented in journals and books, particularly Stanley's bestseller, its title, a proclamation typical of the man, How I Found Livingston. Indeed, most of Stanley's heroic exploits would become well-known to the world. He'd see to that. In February 1892, the 51-year-old master of repeated overpaintings and varnishings of his self-portrait, the master of self-publicity, the self-made man, enthralled audiences at Dunedin's Garrison Hall. They were spellbound, and the Otago Daily Times was suitably impressed. When the curtain rose, every inch of the building was occupied. In the evening, Mr. Stanley met a crowded and enthusiastic audience of adults and delivered with marked success a really magnificent lecture. If there is still doubt in the mind of anyone in Dunedin as to the sterling ability of the great explorer as lecturer, it cannot be shared by those who heard his farewell address. The infatuated times continued. After referring briefly to the magnitude of the explorations, Mr. Stanley gave probably the finest passage in his lectures a description of the dark forest of equatorial Africa. Nothing short of an actual transcription of the actual language used could convey an adequate idea of the consummate skill with which this deeply interesting portion of the subject was given. The perilous march through the forest, in tempests, rain and darkness, beset by fierce and crafty foes, stricken by famine, and within its ranks, thinned by pestilence, 
was a truly terrible record. Don't you wish you'd been there? Stanley's ruthlessness, his ability to reinvent himself, to exhaust his critics and to amass credit where little was due, were not the concerns of the Otago Daily Times reporter in 1892. He was not disposed to stand aside and temper his enthusiasm for the adventure journalist with any hard questions or any in-depth examination that would satisfy today's ODT readers. Much has been written of Stanley and his personal devils, but his achievements were remarkable. Henry Morton Stanley began a tradition of first-person adventure journalism. His reportage defined his era. Stanley told of darkest Africa, and the stories opened the floodgates to the European exploration of Africa and the infamous scramble for that benighted continent's territory. My thanks to Papers Past and authors Richard Hall and Martin Dugard and Jeff Harford. This program has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members. It can be contacted at southernheritage.org.nz. That's southernheritage, all one word, .org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.